Alright, three, two, one. Hi, my name is Angelo, and you are listening in to the Stories Podcast with me. I'm your host, and it's been a while. Uh, I recorded my last episode in November with Amy, and you got the chance to listen to it, I think, a month ago. Um, Things have been a little busy, and so I haven't had the chance to release another podcast, but I've got more content on the way. Hopefully, you guys are listening, and you guys are enjoying it. Um, I created a Facebook page and an Instagram page. You can follow us, find stories with Angelo Geomateo, and give us some feedback. I would like to hear what you want to hear, um, if you have any suggestions, all of that. Um, You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, really. Um, I would really love your feedback and how I can improve this. So today, I've got my friend... Uh, Lex and she is actually Skyping in or well we're using another app but we're recording remotely from you said you're you're at University of Illinois right yeah I'm in uh, Champaign Illinois at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign yeah and so Lex and I went to school together Um, so far it's all I think it's everybody I've been talking to have have been from like U of T and and Trin uh, but I'm I'm hoping to change that at some point. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm getting I'm getting a f- few people. I've got I've got a couple people, uh, you know, on the line. Um, and basically, I wanted to bring Lex on because, well, I don't know how to call you, but you are doing a PhD in food history. Could you like introduce yourself and explain what exactly is it that you do and like what is it that you study um so my phd program is in history and from what i understand things change a lot along the way so we'll see if what i think i'm studying now is what i'm studying three or four years from now but um i did my masters at the university of toronto and there i did concentrate on food history Um, And I wrote about the use of food historically as a diplomatic tool between nations or um, a way for nations to harness the sort of like popular power uh, diplomacy. And now I'm writing um, mostly about the experience of Indian indenture during the period of the British Empire. Um, So roughly from the abolition of slavery in the 1830s until around the 1920s. Um, and that story sort of runs around food uh, and is involved with food. It's involved in commodity agriculture, and so it's involved in food from a bunch of states, but it's not technically so far a food story as much as it is a labor story or a race story or an ethnicity story or a migration story. But uh, my classmates are well acquainted with me just sticking food into my assignments already. so. Uh, my guess is that there will be food in there along the way. I don't think it's something that I'll run away from. Yeah, for sure. And they're all interconnected, right? Um, when you, I mean, how many more of these shows are coming out that acknowledge how food is impacted by history? And um, I know Anthony Bourdain, you know, rest in peace. Um, he talked a lot about oh. history and how history affected food and um 
I, I had recently watched the series from, I believe, David Chang, the chef from Momofuku. Um, he yeah. had visited a few countries in the style of Anthony and did the same sort of thing and kind of talked about culture, kind of talked about history and why that impacted food. So, you know, that's why I'm really excited to bring you on to talk about that. We'll talk a little, we'll talk about your research um, l- a little later on, but, um, you know, you know the premise. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the question in, in a <laughs> second. Um, but, you know, what I do, obviously what I do beforehand, before uh, we start talking, and we, I've done it with every episode, is uh, a land acknowledgement. And this time it's going to be a little different because I am uh, recording in Mississauga from Toronto and we have, you know, a certain history of Indigenous peoples here. But Lex is in in uh, the University of Illinois or Champ. Champagne Urbana is that is that yeah. what you say? Yeah, Urbana yeah. Champagne. Urbana <laughs> Champagne. Okay, and they have their own history of colonialism and indigenous peoples. So we'll share both sides of our indigenous colonial history and do our own land acknowledgments, and then we'll talk a little bit about what reconciliation means to us because. You know, the Wet'suwet'en uh, blockades, uh, the protectors against the uh, uh, coastal gas link pipeline, and then all of the protests around the around the country, that's something that we need to talk about. So um, I'll start off first with my land acknowledgement. So here in Toronto, here in Mississauga, we acknowledge that this territory as a subject of the One Dish, One Spoon, Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and Confederacy of the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the te- traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat people and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Many know this land under its colonial name of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We've benefited and continue to benefit from colonial violence on this land. We remind ourselves how urgently current this history is, as we know the Wet'suwet'en protests are happening right now. This history is happening right now. Colonization is an ongoing process that continues to inflict violence on indigenous lands, cultures, and bodies. So that's my side in Toronto. Uh, Lex, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to start today by recognizing and acknowledging that I'm on the lands of the Peoria, Kaskaskia, Piankasha, Wea, Miami, Muscoutin, Odawa, Sauk, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw nations. These lands were the traditional territory of these native nations prior to their forced removal. These lands continue to carry the stories of these nations and their struggles for survival and identity. As someone attending a land-grant institution, I believe that I and my university have a particular responsibility to acknowledge the people from these lands, as well as the histories of dispossession that have allowed for the growth of the institution I'm attending for the past 150 years. We're also obligated to reflect on and actively address these histories and the role that the university has played in shaping them. This acknowledgement and the centering of Native people is a start as we move forward for the next 150 years. 
Okay, so let's talk about this a little and reflect on it. Um, did you want to do you want to start off by reflecting either on where your university is and um, and where it's located and the indigenous peoples there, or do you want to talk about the Wet'suwet'en pro- protests and Canadian reconciliation? Um, l- just go ahead and and uh, let's start off this reflection. I mean, so I think for me. Um, One of the things that I'm struggling with in reformulating reconciliation uh, in my current moment is that the context of colonialism and anti-Indigenous colonialism and colonial violence in Illinois and in the United States is sort of a like same-same but different situation uh, as compared to Canada. And so, um, you know, I don't think that the stories or the histories of the nations that are in this location are familiar to me in any way, but the story of their dispossession does feel really familiar. Right. And um, is that, is the yeah. indigenous peoples there, um, were they affected by, I believe, Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears, the dis- displacement of indigenous peoples out in the Midwest? Um, you know, I actually don't know specifically uh, whether the nations that I described, um, how much of that population was removed to somewhere else versus how much of that population existed in sort of forced assimilation or other conditions. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think as far as I can tell, like the funny thing about land acknowledgements is they, they sort of s- and I, I, this is why I, li- I really like the one that you have, is that, like, they sound kind of past-ish. Right, As right. if these people have disappeared. But, uh, like, in reality, I, I assume that these people in, or at least some of these nations, are still in this location. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's not like they're walking around in some sort of obvious, like, declarative way all the time in the same way that like I don't declare my identity to everyone I encounter so I assume that I'm encountering these nations daily um, whether I'm encountering their stories at the university is maybe a little different right and I think universities are slowly trying to expand the I guess their curriculum or try and expand awareness of indigenous histories um, within their, uh, you know, university curriculum. I know the history department at U of T, I mean, you and I both did history at U of T. Um, there are more indigenous courses that are coming up through the history department. Yeah, much more now than there were when I was there. Yeah. And I, you know, obviously I think that's, that's a really good thing. I, you know, I, I took some indigenous history courses and they were some of the most fascinating history courses that I had taken probably one of some of my favorite ones um, I, I, I think those those are important to to think about but you know what's what's interesting when you're when you're talking about how um, these land acknowledgements seem to put indigenous peoples in the past I think one you know we know that the colonial violence we know that the issues are still ongoing but two I actually read a statistic that indigenous peoples are growing at a very rapid rate. 
um, the demographics, the self-identification on the census, um, they are growing at rapid rates, as, as, at least in Canada. Um, but what the the land acknowledgement in from the city of Toronto actually specifically mentions how there are diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, uh, and their communities in the city. You know, um, yeah, right. So it it really isn't just um, the past. This this is happening now in the future, and Indigenous peoples are, you know, making making it heard and making sure that the rest of us and you and I talked about this before we started recording um, making sure immigrants start to know that we benefit from colonialism from indigenous peoples and their lands for sure I think the other thing about the sort of past and the present that's really specific to where I'm located right now is that the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has a uh, I, you know, I can never pick what the negative adjective that's specifically right for this condition is, but it has a horrible history, um, to say the least, of uh, only having recently gotten rid of its indigenous mascot. Oh, really? And, and so, um, you know, having done that only so recently, the tradition of that mascot's presence at athletic games is something that alumni really hold on to in a lot of cases and that they're really resistant to let go of. And so I only got here in August, but apparently last year there was a vote to pick a new mascot because like currently the school just has no mascot and Mm -hmm. like, you know, awful things tend to fill a vacuum. Um, But so one thing that's been really front of mind for me in thinking about reconciliation in the space that I live in now is that Um, you know, I went to homecoming this year. I've never been to a homecoming game and I I went to the homecoming football game and the kids who sat behind me uh, were undergrads who had been in the marching band and they were like really aghast that I thought that it was bad to have that mascot. And they were Mm -hmm. like, well, would you just rather that there was no representation at all? Um, Yeah, and so, you know, this idea of the past and the present and like, what does the image of Indigenous life look like to the people who live here right now? And um, what do we know about the people whose land we're on? That's, uh, it's a little more contentious and a little more obvious than it was when I was, you know, 19 and going to the University of Toronto. I don't yeah. know that I knew as much about it or that I thought about it as often as I should have when I was younger. Yeah, and I I know recently McGill had that same debate. They their mascot was the Redmen, and I think they voted to replace that. Um, there was that was a big debate in and of itself. Um, and then you see some NFL teams, the Red Chief, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. The I mean, did they just they won the Super Bowl, right? Yep. And you know, there there were a couple of uh, you know debate pieces uh, opinion pieces about how the kansas city chiefs the their mascot is is racist but um did that lead anywhere you know okay well they won a super bowl but is the conversation going anywhere um the chicago blackhawks the nhl team you know there's there's still um a you know 
they still have a racist mascot. So, you know, even in sports, even in um, the mascots and identities that we choose to identify ourselves with, we have to think about the colonial racism that is involved in that, right? Yeah, I think for me, when I was sort of like mulling over, you know, I know that one of your questions is what is reconciliation for you? And I I think that for me, the answer that I sort of settled on was that um, the biggest part of reconciliation in my life is meeting indigenous people on their own terms where they are now um, and sort of not getting stuck in that frozen in the past discourse that says that indigenous people are what they were when the first colonial violence started occurring. And so rather to listen to, you know, what are the demands of indigenous students at universities now? Do they want more courses? Do they want those instructors to be from their own communities? Do they want credit for working in their community instead of credit for, you know, some typical written project? Do they want you know, what do people want to do with and for their own community and how do they want that to be received? And I think for me, meeting Indigenous communities where they are now and listening to them in a way that we haven't before is I think the sort of, that's the sort of place where I'm at on my reconciliation journey is how can I pay attention to what actual Indigenous people say about themselves in the present right exactly um i think for me especially now in this you know in the last couple of weeks i mean in in general it's always about listening right and listening to the people that need to be heard from the people that that we benefit from that we have stolen their lands we need to listen to them and what they need right and there's there's all of these um politicians who are trying to use um the word reconciliation and try and impose their own definitions on it right um the bc premier john horgan he had a press conference recently during all of these protests that have been happening and he said we are moving forward on reconciliation but is reconciliation happening when the Wet'suwet'en are protesting against the pipeline that is being built on their lands, right? And so for me, it's about learning. It's about um, acknowledging that we are, you know, still on their lands. We are benefiting from them. Maybe we can talk about this later because I, I love the movie Parasite. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. I'm very ashamed to admit. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's a great movie. I, I love it so much. Um, but I've, I've seen it twice and I, I, I just saw it on Monday, uh, just rewatched it because, you know, I won an, won an Oscar and I was like, I, this is one of my favorite movies. I have to rewatch it and catch all the nuances that I missed the first time. And leaving that theater, I started to think, well, you know, there, there's a lot of talk in the movie about who is the parasite is it the is it the the poor living off of the rich um by you know basically conning them that's the premise of the movie it's i i don't mean to spoil it but that you know that that's, part's not a spoiler yeah that's not a spoiler that's that's the premise or 
is the rich par- being a parasite on the poor, right? Right. Um, and then I started thinking about it in the Canadian context and how we are all parasites on indigenous peoples and their lands and the environment and it ties into climate change and our national identity and we really need to think about how we benefit from them and how we need to do better to change that and i think i i hope that this podcast in in some ways a little um is part of my way of um of giving back or at least you know acknowledging indigenous peoples because the original storytellers were indigenous i am sort of um picking up on their tradition of telling stories and sharing and you know being part of a community so i i'm trying i hope i'm doing the best that i can and i hope i can keep doing more and i think that's that's what we have to do to commit to to doing more right yeah i think the scariest thing uh about it from the perspective of someone who has a lot of privilege in this situation like i do um is and i'm learning this every day now that i've started my grad school i'm like oh goodness i didn't know this was a lesson i'd have to learn um learning to learn in public is really scary mm-hmm. um, and like you know answering a question honestly where your answer is going to be in public and in the age of the internet where your answer is going to be permanent or semi-permanent answering a question about you know what do you think we should do how do you think we should behave what should we do to make amends how do you reconcile with people you've harmed how do you reconcile with people your ancestors harmed? Or how do you reconcile when you don't think you harmed anyone? Exactly, um, yeah. It's really scary to answer those kinds of questions in like a public or semi-public forum. So, you know, um, I admire, but I am intimidated by the premise of your first question. And I, I like that you've been asking it to everybody. I think that, um, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's been listening to the podcast anymore if they get asked to be on it and they get asked the question. But I think that it's been surprising to me how different the answers are um, in a good way, in a good yeah. way. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even myself, I, I'm not perfect. And I've been talking to people and I've had to change my perspective. I, you know, have thought certain things and maybe I had been a little wrong in what I had been thinking and and I've had to unlearn and learn different things and you, you know maybe I've had to really think about you know maybe why I'm an annoyed about being about having to be corrected and then having to think you know it's a, it's a, maybe it's a good thing that I'm annoyed that I have to be corrected I have to change my thinking and perspective on things if it's if it's wrong or if it's uh, not not exactly actively harming people but you know if if it if it really um, per- perpetuates you know a, a certain negative thing right yeah um having to unlearn and learn and be okay with that you know not 
lash out or not, you know, be angry about being corrected. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to get to the main question, the whole premise of this this podcast, the Raisin Dedra. Um, and again, the, the, the big rule is answer however you want. Uh, answer honestly. Um, the, it's, it's all up to you how you want to tell your story. But um, the big question is, uh, what's your story? Okay, I'm not going to lie. I've been thinking about this since you asked me a little while ago to consider being on the podcast. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have a great one-line answer. And I don't. Um, well, it doesn't have to be in one line, right? Like people's stories are more than just one line. My story is that I am a mixed kid from Toronto who has always loved books. Okay. If I had to tell someone that, you know, that somewhere to start and asking me questions, that's like the starting info that I would give them is my home is Toronto. Um, I grew up with mixed culture uh, because my parents are from very different places and that has shaped a ton of who I am. And the other stuff that has shaped me is like, you know, aside from the obvious influences that everyone has, your family, your friends, I just really always liked to run away with books. Yeah, well, you've got a Goodreads account that you are actively on, and I keep seeing notifications for, so... <laughs> yeah, it's... And, you know, I... Obviously, I've picked a, a career or a, a vocation that harnesses my love of books. Um, almost so much that some days I am like, oh, God, are there really more books? <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, yeah, so... I guess that's where I would start. Which one of those do you want to start with? Um, again, it's up. It, it's it's up to you. I mean, um, Toronto. Toronto is an interesting place. How just diverse it is, um, and uh, um, mi- you know, mixed cultures, mi- uh, immigrants uh, who are uh, coming from mixed cultures. Um, we, I talked about that with Amy, and I think that's always a fascinating subject. Um, and obviously, books. I, I probably, I, I definitely have not <laughs> read. I de- definitely have not read as many books as you have. But um, start where, start wherever you want. I mean, this is this is up to you. I guess I would say that uh, my story is impossible without Toronto, um, yeah. because my parents are from super different places, and I don't think they would have met anywhere else. Um, Did they meet so in my, Toronto? Yeah, my parents met in Toronto. Um, they met because they worked together at the hospital. My uh, mom was a nurse. She's retired now. And my dad was at the time working in housekeeping and he still works in the operating room, but he's an operating room attendant. Um, so, you know, some change there, but same place. But my parents met there and would never have met anywhere else, I don't think, because my mom is from a mining town in northern Ontario called Larder Lake, which some people situate on a map by noticing that it is near Kirkland Lake, um, and Kirkland Lake has a famous gold mine. Okay. But my mom is, you know, she's from a small mining town. She's got a Finnish and Scottish background, primarily. Um, 
and her mom moved to Canada from Finland. Her, no, her mom's mom moved to Canada from Finland. Sorry. I always get that stuck. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. My great grandmother moved here as a kid and the rest of her siblings were born here. And so my grandmother, my, I call her my Mumu because that's how you say grandmother mm-hmm. in Finnish, but Mumu, uh, is the first generation Canadian. So um, there's an immigrant story of a very different shade on my mom's side of the family. Um, And then her paternal family had been in Canada for longer and is, I guess, a little bit more of the classic Canadian immigrant story that you get in high school classrooms where it's like moving from the British Isles, comes and settles in rural Canada, that kind of situation. Do you know when exactly um, that you're your paternal side immigrated uh my mom's paternal side i don't know the exact date although my mom has been doing a ton of research so i'm hoping that i'll find out more about that soon um do you know and then, what eth- uh, you know i'm just sorry if i'm if i'm just kind of uh trying to <laughs> uh follow up on this but um do you know what kind of ethnic um uh, group that your mom's paternal side is from because that it's it's always been interesting to me uh, uh, quite a bit of my research at U of T was on ethnic immigrant waves yeah I mean so I know that um, my mom has figured out like the probable Scottish clan that we'd have been from and I think it's Innes or McInnes okay. um, but you know I haven't figured out much more than that um which is i mean i think this is all part of my story is i'm only now settling into exploring that side of my roots because in the canadian school system i took for granted that i would learn about that side for me right i just i took for granted that like ah like how special is it really to be canadian everyone in Canada is Canadian. Um, And then as I, you know, as I grew into my teens and my twenties, I was like, oh man, Canadian-ness is very contested. Um, So I'm only now starting to appreciate and learn about my roots, um, especially that side. My mom, I think, has done a good job recently of really gifting me, and my my grandmother's done a good job of gifting me like small things that immerse you in Finnish culture, like books about uh, the tradition of going to the sauna or, you know, books about storytelling or, you know, I I had like a collection of myths uh, in a book when I was a kid. So there's always been like little odds and ends around. But I think, yeah, I, I took for granted the sort of rural Canadian heritage that I had because it seemed so emblematically Canadian to me. Um, and I guess I felt like, I would just learn it somehow by osmosis, just by being in the country. And then my dad's family uh, uh, moved here in the 70s from Trinidad um, in the West Indies. And they are Indo-Caribbean descendants. So they're the descendants of indentured laborers, which is a topic that I'm studying in my doctorate now. Um, And so I, you know, that history of immigration is also very specific, right? Like moving from India to British colonies in the West Indies and farming sugar, and then a second immigration, a second wave of immigration from those colonies to the Atlantic coast of North America, ending up in cities like New York and Toronto mostly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't think my 
story would exist without Toronto because where else in the world does a woman from a small Canadian mining town and a man from the West Indies <laughs> end up in the same place, right? Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, I, I am always the most complicated answer when people are like, what ethnicity are you? And I'm like, I'm mixed, which was a real boogeyman for the Canadian census because there was no box for being mixed when I grew up. Right, right. Um, I don't know if you remember this. When we were little, there was no box for being mixed. And so I was really frustrated all the time when I was little because um, I, I'm not white. Um, I like, I don't, we can talk all we want about the, the political and historical stakes of whiteness, but no one's ever looked at me and been like, ah, a white girl. Um, and I don't think of myself as not having any white in me because I am like, I'm both parents' kids. So I've always thought of myself as mixed, but that wasn't an option. And so I, I didn't want to check off the white box because I'm not only my mom's kid and I didn't want to check off South Asian, not only because my dad is from Trinidad in my head, not from India and doesn't have as much of a connection to India as I think checking that box off means to me. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm not only my dad's kid and my dad's not from South Asia technically. And then the Caribbean box, so I was like, okay, like maybe the Caribbean box will have something, but then like the Caribbean descendants box only acknowledged Afro-Caribbean descendants. Mm. I don't know if that's changed. And so I was like, well, I mean, that's not the culture I grew up with either. And so I would always check off other, which made me feel like an alien. Like I was like, I'm not like a hamster or a giraffe. I'm a person. (laughs) And so, you know, being mixed, while it's only possible in the specific way that I feel about it, in Toronto, I think. Uh, Toronto hadn't necessarily caught up to that fact for most of what I remember when I was little. For sure. And I think, you know, when you when you take off the box other, it's probably dehumanizing, right? I mean, there are a lot of studies of when you, when you identify as an, an other or someone identifies you as an other, it takes away a little bit of your humanity. I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about identity and um, immigration and, and culture. And, and you know, it, it must really complicate who, what you think of, your, of who you are and what story that you tell when you have to take off the, the box that says other, right? Um, and it, it's... I, I hope things have like changed a little um, and it's it's weird I guess uh, with censuses right um, yeah. and and how the government how the state um, categorizes people you know it it has to try and simplify what are complex identities and cultures into little checkboxes and categories and you have to figure out okay what category do I fit in um, I think at one point there was just a, there was just a Asian um, checkbox on on the census or something and I think you know I had to put Asian but when I say that I'm Asian it's it's complicated too because I'm Southeast Asian I'm Filipino 
you know, uh, and there's there's a lot of discourse in the Asian community about like where do Southeast Southeast Asians fit? Where do Filipinos fit? They're not East Asian. They're they don't look East Asian. They don't um, come from a culture of you know the i was talking about this with amy the last episode of like bubble tea and like korean dramas and and all that sort of stuff right um filipino is its own thing but um i think you you said that that other now is is a checkbox i think filipino is is a checkbox now or southeast asian is a checkbox on the census Is, is it true that it's it's other now like you can you can check that off well, so when I was or sorry, little, uh, mix. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So when I was little, you had to check off other, and now, I think the most recent time that I filled out census data, there's like, you can check off multiple. Like, there's still not a box for mixed, if I recall correctly. Because um, like in my ideal world, there would just be a box that's like mixed. Fill out what mix you are, and then mm-hmm. it's the government's problem if there's a lot of like data that they have to deal with like there are people and people are complicated and i don't you know it's the government's problem if they want to inventory me they should figure out how to do that um on my terms is sometimes how i feel um but i think the most recent time that i did the census there was like now you didn't have to pick only one box so i didn't have to pick other but it didn't really fix things for me because now what I do is I check off the Caucasian and the South Asian and the Caribbean box, but that still feels inaccurate. Like, you know, there's a really complicated racial history of why the Caribbean box is about being Afro-Caribbean and not about being uh, Indo-Caribbean, and it's not about being the mix of those two things, which is a thing that exists. It's not about being, you know, Lebanese or Chinese and being from the Caribbean. It's a very specific set of demographics and immigration histories that lead to that box being technically not what I am. And then there's a politics around whether or not people want to acknowledge blackness in their ancestry in the Caribbean too. Blackness that they might not know about or that they might know about and have complicated or even negative feelings about. And so the new solution where I check off three boxes, none of which feel accurate in any way to me is, I guess, better because I don't have to put other, but it still doesn't feel right. For sure, for sure. And, um, you know, I maybe maybe a little later, if I have some time, I'll look at the census and, and see. I, want, I wonder if maybe the, the fact that you put multiple check boxes has uh they 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 count it as like a mixed category or something um or you know like um if there's there's a way to correlate the data between two or three check boxes um in order to get like you know that specific category do you know what i mean like i wonder if that's a i wonder if that's a thing that you can do with census data I don't know if you can disaggregate it and in my like in my heart feelings what I have is like I don't want them to be able to disaggregate that I don't want anyone to be able to disaggregate my identities because so much of the trouble of the experience of being mixed and I'm sure you know I'm sure this came up in slightly different contours with Amy is that like so much of the trouble of it is do I get to be in either of these boxes ever 
Right, and you're straddling that line, right? Yeah. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of debate uh, for people who have mixed heritage of any combination about whether there is a commonality, a common culture of mixedness, if you will. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there is. Uh, but, you know, on, on the days where I think about my impossible to disaggregate census data, I'm like, you know, maybe there's something there that we share. Um, it's, it's a complicated thing. And, you know, when it, when it comes to identity, I think it, in, in some ways it must be really dehumanizing and really confusing um, for that to, like, that phenomenon to really happen. And censuses are... Censuses are weird, right? Like, just having to having to simplify complex stories um, into data is is weird for me. Um, yeah. You know, I understand now. There's 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 a whole um, movement towards collecting more data and um, you know data data science. There's all of these boot camps that are that are you know exploring data science but you know that the reason why i started this podcast is because you know stories and identities are complicated and they they can't be just explained by as as i just said like check boxes and data they they you, you have to be able to let people tell their own story and um tell who they are because identities are are complicated and that's why it's so fascinating that's why it's so um interesting to me you know and and i think giving people people should be given a way to tell who they are versus you know a data point right yeah for sure i think also like Data points obscure a lot of the politics of things like a census, right? Like saying, even if they gave me a mixed box on a census, having that box doesn't tell you anything about what it's like to be that thing, right? Like in my case, there there are so many things about my identity that don't make sense to me using one word or key term searches, if you will, right? Like, in my head, my culture makes perfect sense in the context of Toronto. I grew up with parents who had exceedingly different cultures that, to me, of course they make sense together because I exist. So, you know, if I make sense in any way to myself, then these two things are compatible. And so, you know, I, my mom grew up in a part of, Canada and a part of Ontario where it's not uncommon to eat moose during the hunting season or right. it's not uncommon to like eat partridge and my dad grew up in a culture where it's not uncommon to eat goat so you know when I ate moose for the first time and in fact I oh no that's not true this is not the only way now that I've eaten moose but until like two or three months ago the only way that I'd ever eaten moose was curried hmm. because my mom was like, here's some moose. We should cook this moose when we have everyone over. And my dad was like, well, I've never cooked moose, but seems like goat. To me, that like that mix, like that dish is emblematic of what my life is like. But that's not what being mixed is like in Canada. Like saying mixed doesn't tell you anything about the fact that like 
you know, you have to have a conversation with each parent at some point. It will just happen naturally that you have to talk to them about why you aren't or how you aren't the thing they are, right? Like being mixed on a census, even if they gave me that box, would never be able to explain what it's like to, you know, have a conversation with my mom and be like, look, no one has ever looked at me and thought that I belonged to the group or the people that when they look at you, they think you belong to. And that makes me feel far away. And that makes me feel alien. Um, and that's not me picking a culture. That's other people picking for me when they see me. But, you know, getting a mixed box on the census also doesn't do anything to explain the joy and the complexity and the emotional difficulty of being able to tell my dad and my grandma and my aunts and uncles on my dad's side, like, when I'm doing my research right now in my classes, like, that research might make your side of the family story make more sense to me. I might have more concrete details about your ancestors' life than we've ever had before. I might be able to tell that part of the story. And it, it doesn't do anything to undo how complicated it is to feel like telling a story that someone might label as my dad's family's story for me, because it's a labor history and because it's a history of the creation of racial identities and the creation of race in specific spaces, like that is also a story that is tied up in my mom's ancestral stories. Like for me, those stories are impossible to disaggregate. If I study indentured labor, it's more obviously my dad's family's story. But to me, it's just stuff that belongs to my story and it's labor history so it's stuff that directly pertains to my mom's side of the family but it's ethnic history that specifically is tied to my dad's side of the family and I don't always feel like those things are separable or should be separated but I think if you just looked at me and looked at you know whatever data points there are on the history department what site you'd be like oh she she researches her her paternal ancestry um and you know having a mixed box on the census doesn't undo how complicated that feels after you finish a reading or after you call home it's you know it solves one problem and opens up another one i think right um i have a question for you then are you proud to be mixed oh absolutely i think it's the coolest thing about me um and let's be clear that I think I'm a, like approximately one of the biggest nerds I've ever met. Um, <laughs> but I, I think like being mixed is amazing. Like whose culture do you know that curried moose is the emblematic representation of what it's like to be them? And like, how cool is it that I get to feel tied to, you know, like Canadian foresty plaid wearing vibes while I'm eating food that people think is South Asian. Like, that's awesome. In my head, I think that being mixed is like, it's an amazing thing. But I will say that I came to that conclusion after like, you know, I don't know, like two decades of just desperately wanting to like have some group say, no, you're just ours. And so, in a way, 
loving and being excited about being mixed, which is how I genuinely feel now, is a resilient response to the fact that if I don't love it, no one else is going to. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think it's it's incredible just to um you know, to be to be proud of that that heritage. I think um everybody has to find their own journey. They have to explore their own identities and the way that you kind of thought about it and and as you said, you know, after having some like one of your one or more of your cultures try and grab you as one of your own trying to find your place and it seems like you found a place in being proud of being mixed you know um and i think that's really cool i think that's really interesting and uh, like absolutely incredible i just i i don't have i don't have that experience i i don't know that experience um I, I I do know that like for example the the Hapa community, um, the half Asian community, um, they are you know a growing movement where they are proud to be mixed. But you know I have never I've never felt that 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 um, feeling you know so that's that's incredible. But I I have to I have to pick up on this um, curry curry mousse. What does that taste like? I, I, I want to transition a little uh, a little to to food because it's it's incredible to me how there are foods that that represent the mixing of cultures and how you know there are foods that that have were were mixed at the time but then have become part of the culture. So you know, for example, in the Philippines. Um, there's there's Spanish influences. There's uh, uh, paella that that has become paella um, that that's huh. become the Filipino variation of paella. Um, there's uh, everybody everybody talks about this uh, Filipino spaghetti. It's been it's Americanized because there's uh, like they add sugar to the sauce and hot dogs, so it's sweet. Huh. Um, or uh, sisig, which is like chopped up mints, like the the kind of what you would call like the the, the junk of like uh, of like a uh, pork, um, like the pig's pig's head, you know, whatever whatever you call it, and then you mince it up, you deep fry it, uh, serve it on like a like a hot plate, and that oh, was like so good. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was because like American soldiers in uh, the uh, in World War II needed a snack and Filipinos were like okay well this is all we have left let's throw it together and and deep fry it and and that became like a Filipino dish you know and so thinking about those dishes it's incredible to me how there are all these dishes like your your curry mousse dish that that is just a mix of different cultures and how it's become you know, emblematic to the idea of of um, identity in mixed cultures. I mean, I think that the story of these dishes, like, that's probably the essential kernel of my graduate education. So, like, if the story of me as a human in the world is being mixed, then the story of me as a scholar is eating. 
yeah. um, which sounds kind of strange, but so, you know, a couple of things. Uh, one, you should always listen to the simplest and most consistent parts of your own story when you're trying to pick your path, because if I had done that, I would have gotten here so much sooner. <laughs> um, I like, I did homework for years at the kitchen table. Um, and you know, I would like, I would hang out in the kitchen and you know, a lot of the time I would hang out in the kitchen with my dad and he'd be cooking and you know, he would hand me a like small bowl with the chopped up vegetables that he was going to put in the spaghetti sauce. Or he would hand me, you know, like whatever was going on in the kitchen or I'd hang out in the kitchen and it would have been my mom's day off and she would have cooked something and that would be the smell that was in the kitchen or she would have baked something. I associate like so many different baking smells with my mom and like there would be the blueberry coffee cake that I really love and she would hand me a slice of that while I was working on my homework or and so food and my scholarship have always gone together in a like side by side way and then I was in my undergrad at U of T and I minored in diaspora studies while I was there and in my minor the fourth year seminar that I took or one of the fourth year seminars that I took was um, a class on diaspora and food culture. Who was that taught by? I think it's Ken McDonald. Yeah, okay. it's Professor Ken McDonald, who, like, fascinating stuff on cheese. If you're really into cheese, like, great book. Um, <laughs> but he showed a film in that class called Dalpuri Diaspora, which I have since hunted down and purchased a copy of. Um, and you have to, like, actually go to the, like, small distributor because um, the scholar who made the film, like, only sells it through this one distributor and, like, otherwise it's impossible to get a hold of. But I tracked it down because I, this film did so much for me. So Dalbury Diaspora is the story of this specific type of roti that we eat in Trinidad. Um, and I think there are also variations of it in Guyana that are slightly different, but, um, but closer than anyone else's rotis. Um, and it's the story of like this one scholar from Trinidad trying to figure out why is it that this roti exists in Trinidad and there is no equivalent in India? Like how hmm. did it go? How did we, it's, a, it's an obviously South Asian inspired food it's from the Indo-Caribbean community. How is it that even though the roti that exists in India is one way, it does not exist in the same way when you cross the several oceans and get to the Caribbean? And he used this one food to backtrack the story of Indian immigration or migration to the West Indies. And I I had no idea that that was possible. I had always kind of assumed that one day I would get interested in my mom's genealogical history and I would research the Finnish and Scottish sides of my ancestry and that there would be pretty decent records for it and I'd be able to find some details uh, for at least several generations. But that eventually when I wanted to do that with my dad's family, that it would pretty much stop with my great-grandparents or my great-great-grandparents at most. Right. Um, and I, you know, I at a certain point, I. I was kind of upset about that, that it, that it would just cease to make sense or cease to be available to me no matter how badly I wanted to know. I hated that. And then I watched this movie and I was like, wait, 
food is a genealogical tool and uh, the whole world opened up for me in that moment um and you know i i took that class with professor mcdonald and i was also taking um a lot of southeast asian history courses with um professor nyung tran who was like a huge mentor to me in my undergrad um I took and a course with her. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I did we like took uh, we took the Southeast Asian Crossroads course with her together. Yeah, yeah, second year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she had a course in the history department on food and Southeast Asian history. And so I, I took that course, and I took, um, I took Ken McDonald's course, and I took, you know, I just took anything that I could get my hands on where I would be allowed to talk about food. I took Professor Addo Quason's course on diasporic literature because I knew there were books about food. Uh, and I, I just sucked up all the information about food and diaspora that I possibly could because I was like, okay, maybe I can't find out the names of my specific ancestors, but maybe I can find out what they ate and where they lived and what language they spoke and what they wore and what the climate was like and what the plants were like. And I was like, maybe that is the best I can do. And that is not specific, but you know, that's how I opened up my interest in cultural history. And you know, as I got excited about it, I started telling the people that I was friends with you know, in my other classes, the people I was friends with at Trin, the people that I was friends with in college debate, and people's eyes would just light up. People felt so happy and excited, and they would open up to me and tell me what they ate, or what their grandma cooked, or what they knew about ancestral food connections between, you know, their family in South Carolina, and the fact that they are African American, or their family in China and the fact that they grew up in Vancouver or like, you know, just all of these things would open up and people, people who never wanted to talk about their personal life would suddenly tell me things that I thought were so intimate and I loved it. I just ate it up and that's how I decided that I wanted to make the switch. I didn't want to be in poli-sci, I didn't want to, you know, be, pursue my 18-year-old dreams of being a diplomat. I wanted to be a historian. Um, Professor Tran was really instrumental in modeling the kind of like intense focus, caring about people whose stories who are, are typically left out that I took to be, you know, frankly, and, and you know, I'm sure she would be embarrassed by how much gushing I'm doing about it, but I, you know, that, that severe commitment to a serious study of people who are left out. You know, I, I, I took that to be a really big model and she was so helpful in pointing me to history as a specific way to do that. And then I applied to do my master's at U of T and there was this burgeoning community of scholars around food who work on the Scarborough campus at U of T. And they, you know, my, my master's mentor, Professor Jeffrey Pilcher, um, you know, he taught on the downtown campus for the graduate program, but him and Professor Jaita Sharma, who was huge in pushing me to really pursue the study of indenture and of my own ancestry, like those models for what I was interested in were because people were interested in food as this genealogical tool. And I didn't know that was an option for me. Um, you know, I was... I was there taking classes. Professor Bhavani Raman 
like encouraged me to pursue the connection between food and the law that was how I learned about zoning law and how racialized the motivation for zoning law has always been and how street food has this very political and racial and you know deeply complicated history no matter where in the world you're eating food on the street like there's a reason you can only get hot dogs in Toronto until five or ten years ago there's a reason why street food is so amazing in Southeast Asia um, you know I, I took a class on sensory history with Professor Dan Bender and like that class opened my eyes to the fact that I had been thinking about history as this visual textual thing but what if history was also about the sounds people made when they're like selling things and the smells in certain neighborhoods that go away if you're not allowed to eat on the public transit and I all of a sudden the world was so wide and I would never have ended up in a PhD program in history if I hadn't been in Ken McDonald's diasporic foodways class discovering that I liked that stuff because that was the moment watching Dalfrey Diaspora, being in that class, writing about my own culture, writing about curried moose, writing about being mixed, that was when history was mine. It wasn't just about, like, I don't know, some English guy or some French guy that showed up and, like, sailed to Toronto and made a deal with Indigenous people that he didn't keep. I was like, oh, like, history is also about why like, how is it possible that my mom is this mix of things and is in Northern Ontario and then moves to Toronto and meets my dad, who is this mix of things and is from the Caribbean, but is from India, but is from, and moves to Toronto. And, and I was like, okay, this is for me. I can do this. And I can, I can be in this in a way that I didn't think was possible when I was in seventh grade learning about, like, I don't know, Samuel de Champlain or whatever it is we learn about. Um, yeah, food, food is like this intimate, amazing, I'm ranting, but food is food is how I got where I am. If if I'm mixed and that got me to be who I am, then food is how I got to where I am, for mm -hmm. sure. Well, you know, ranting is always welcome on this because I I, I always want to hear this because this is, this is absolutely incredible and I, you know this is this is sort of the reason why I wanted to get you on the the podcast because I I love food I want to talk about food and and you know so much about it and I love how passionate you are about it and I I think it's incredible like I I really appreciate that you shared your story of how you ended up. Be, becoming a scholar on food history and and all of the courses and mentors that you you talk to and and learn from and that that got you to where you are i think that's that's uh i i love that that story and it's incredible um you know uh i i gotta ask you um you know what other tell me tell me one of the more most interesting stories about food that you know that's um you know something that most people wouldn't know because i the 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 most interesting story that i know is that tomatoes aren't native to italy um <laughs> I, I i know i know that little piece of trivia i've got i've got a little bit of like 
cocktail party trivia like um uh closing time by semi-sonic isn't actually about <laughs> yeah it isn't actually about like a bar closing it's about childbirth um that's my favorite piece of uh cocktail party trivia but um wow. uh the um the other one is uh that tomatoes aren't native to um they're not native to italy i think they're they're from south america right and they were brought over by um by explorers and they were like what is this and they ended up growing their own varieties in in italy correct me if i'm wrong but that's that's my no, you're cocktail totally party right that tomatoes are from the americas absolutely yeah that's my cocktail party trivia but what's um uh correct me correct me if the if there was anything wrong with that story but um otherwise you know tell me a story about like the most interesting food history thing that you know well uh you know, one of my one of my bad cocktail party habits is that I can make any perfectly pleasant food story into something that's probably about racism, <laughs> <laughs> um, which you know I'm you know I'm a scholar of colonialism. I'm an anti-imperial scholar. I'm a feminist scholar, and so like I'm always looking for those stories of like, oh, you mean you left out the important working class probably female, possibly non-white person in this story. Um, I'm always looking for those. And so one of the things that I was really fascinated to learn, I think there's an NPR piece that people can look up about it. Um, I was really curious how vanilla came to be like the stand-in phrase that we use for when something is like lame and mainstream. (laughs) Because- Or British. Good vanilla is really expensive. And so I was like, man, like, why is vanilla synonymous with like lame, mainstream, basic, plain? Like, how did that happen? And, you know, I don't really know that I have a conclusive answer for how that phrase changed. But the thing that I did learn while looking into the history of vanilla is that, so it grows on like an orchid-like plant and people have probably seen the pods like that you scrape vanilla beans out of if you're making some kind of fancy dessert. Um, and that plant is not from most of the places that now grow vanilla. And one of the best kinds of vanilla that you can get is Madagascar vanilla. And as a result of it being from there, the I think it's a wasp that pollinates it. The wasp that pollinates it is consequently not from places like Mexico where a lot of vanilla is now grown. So when colonial explorers brought vanilla from Madagascar to Mexico, it just wouldn't flower and it wouldn't make the bean that has the vanilla in it. Mm -hmm. And so it was super expensive because they had to hand pollinate it. Um, But the the person who figured out that hand pollination was the solution and that not having that bug was the reason that it wasn't flowering was a black enslaved man. Oh. And so I was like really amazed and then slightly like chagrined and not as surprised as I was hoping I would be that I was like, oh yeah, like a worker of color from the place where this plant is from is the person who figured out that when you import this plant to a place it's not from, it's gonna need some help. Um, 
but yeah, so the, that like that changed the game for me in thinking about like, you know, vanilla extract is super cheap, but real vanilla is really expensive. And I was like, man, like, why do I gotta pay so much to get <laughs> real vanilla? And the answer is like, you have to pay that much because some incredibly smart, incredibly left out person of color figured out that when you interfere with nature, you have to do a lot more work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I love stories like that. I love, you know, I, I love crossover and innovation that has to do with someone being like, all right, I'm displaced, but I'm not giving up my culture. Um, for sure, for sure. Which is, you know, that's exactly how I ended up eating curried mousse when I was like, what, 12 <laughs> or so, because like, my mom was like, here's mousse. This is the thing that I grew up with. And now my mom like still cooks mousse, but like now I've had it in another way. Like the last time I was with my mom, she made like Korean beef style mousse. And Ooh. so it was like in like a Korean bulgogi type marinade, Ooh. but it was mousse. And I was like, ah, oh, this is devastating. It turns out that mousse is just actually very delicious no matter what you do to it. Yeah. But you know, like, yeah, I, I think you can learn a lot by just asking really basic questions about things you take for granted. And one of the things that uh, we often take for granted is like, you got to eat. Everyone has to eat. And that's the other reason I love food history is even people who say they don't care about food, you can historicize them. Like, why don't you care about food? What are you eating to replace food? Why do you think the food that is basic, that is just like conveying nutrients to your stomach, like why is it that you think pasta is basic or craft dinner is basic, but you don't think that like, I don't know, pita bread is basic? Or like, yeah. why do you think white sliced bread is basic? but you don't think that pasta is basic or whatever it is that you eat. If you don't eat, if you don't like eating, if you don't like food, if you're allergic to food, if you've never had enough food, like all of that is political, all of that is historical. You know, people who have opened up to me have opened my eyes to so many food stories that I didn't know were possible. And I, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about history. History is about people's stories and how people have changed over time. And that, that gateway has allowed me a really intimate view on people's lives. You know, having someone say, I really hope that you finish this degree because I would love it if someone talk, talked about how traumatic it is when you grow up so poor that when you're an adult, you don't want to eat a certain food anymore because that's all you could afford to eat growing up. Yeah, or, yeah. I really hope that you finish this degree because I would love to see someone who looks like me talking about how our culture is important to like, you know, it, sometimes it feels like a little bit of pressure and I'm afraid to disappoint people who are cheering me on. But most of the time I'm just jazzed that people who I have, you know, very little in common with feel like if I get this right, they will see themselves in it. I'm really into that. That's, you know, that's how you make, the academy open up yeah yeah that's that's really cool and i i love that you're passionate about it and i'm one of the, i'm i count me in as one of your supporters on that um oh. and 
I think that's that's incredible, and I think, you know, you 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 want to find work that matters. Uh, you want to find uh, things that you're passionate about and uh, things that'll make an impact. And I think the the work that you're doing, I think, um, really sounds like it, it will make an impact, especially on just on you know on a personal level on you know your friends um, and uh, the people in your life. They're they're their lives and their stories it, it makes an impact on their stories i was going to make a little joke about how um when when you were saying um you know food being plain and boring and simple i was going to say uh you know the the other joke about it being british um <laughs> well I, I you know I, I know there's there's more to the story than that but you know the the whole joke about how british um british people just like season you know whatever their their chicken or barely season their chicken with like salt and pepper and that's it <laughs> you know that that like old joke right um but le- the other thing that's interesting to me is that uh, you know i'm i am you know this i am a, a big f- uh, coffee lover i i love mm-hmm. going to yeah i love going to coffee shops and i love learning about coffee and and what's what's so incredible about what you are saying is that it it mimics what i've been learning about like coffee um you know the the when you were talking about like uh the the pollination um that that uh that exporting of uh, vanilla you know it, it's it's it sort of reminds me of how um uh, I'll talk about coffee with with someone else. With I, I, I want to do a deep dive. I want to do a deep dive on co- with co- on coffee with someone else um, at some point. But um, there's a there's a particular um, there's a particular varietal of coffee um, called geishas, and huh. the interesting thing about it is they took the plant from Ethiopia, uh, the coffee plant from Ethiopia implanted it they brought it to south america um usually i think panama they would plant the coffee there and then they would grow the coffee again there um and it would it would have a particular taste that wasn't an ethiopian coffee or a panama coffee but it would be distinctly geisha and then and then to add on to that there would be people who would take that geisha plant after you know i believe it's been like uh like a century that this has been happening where they would they would ship the plant from ethiopia to panama then there's been a growing trend in coffee of bringing that that same plant that geisha plant back to ethiopia and those are called geisha villages and that creates even like a whole new flavor you know just just the way that like food changes with uh, migration and dia- diaspora and um, movement and uh, geopolitical movement. I think it's it's so interesting. Um, I don't I I don't know if you have uh, a lot more time. I do. Like, if do you have a, do you have any more time? Yeah, I've got about fifteen minutes. Well, I just want to like I I tend to ask a lot of people. Um, you know, I went on this podcast. Just what are you What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you um, What are you watching? You know, I uh, obviously I'm a I'm a big music fan. So, um, but you know, tell me what you're tell me what you're up to. Tell me what you're interested in recently. Let's 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 move out of the academia side. Let's move let's move away from that. But like, what are you what are you interested in recently? Like, what have you been reading? What have you been listening to? 
Um, so what am I listening to? Lately, I am listening to music that helps me actually stick with my readings and like power through all the writing I have to do. So I've been listening to a lot of sort of like jazz and sort of like ambient background, not quite house music, but just that sort of like ambient jazzy house influenced kind of music. Um, Nothing, not a particular artist, just kind of like whatever random assortment of stuff the internet will throw at me in that sort of jazzy vibe. (laughs) Um, That's what I've been listening to the most lately. I am addicted, seriously addicted to podcasts. So I am always listening to podcasts. Um, So what are you listening to recently? The one I am listening to the most is... 10 Things That Scare Me from WNYC Studios. Okay. Um, It's super short. The episodes are like five to 10 minutes and they come out once a week. And it's just people making lists of 10 things that they're afraid of. And sometimes they explain some of the things on the list and sometimes they hardly explain any of them at all. And I find it so fascinating to think about like, what are people afraid of? Why are they afraid of that? What does that say about them? Why do they have some fears? Like some fears are universal. Lots of people seem to be afraid of death or of bugs. And then some feel like fears are really specific. Like they have to do with their family background or their location. Um, so I love 10 things that scare me. And I've also really been loving Born and Raised from HuffPost Canada. Okay. Um, which is specifically about the children of immigrants in Canada and their experiences. Um, They did a series that was entirely about food for their first series. That's cool. And they did a series recently about love from parenthood to romantic relationships to, um, you know, Muslim dating apps. So I've been really loving those two. And then... I guess the other thing that I've been really, really into is um, lately I really like podcasts where they interview authors or they like or like things that are like a book club in format because Mm -hmm. there's so many books in the world that I don't get to read. And so getting to hear other people talk about stories, I think, kind of fills some of that gap and like some of the fear of missing out for me. So um, I think the most recent there's one from house of anansi press and there's one from the bbc that i've been listening to that are sort of like their literature podcast Mm -hmm. that i love and then reading and watching um i'm watching sex education on netflix love that show so funny um and you know you hate to admit it but i'm watching the crown okay um, (laughs) which you know i've torn between whether or not it's good to watch this like really well composed show about this institution I don't think should exist (laughs) Um, so you know amazing acting amazing costumes really good sets but I'm also like ah do I need another show about the British monarchy though (laughs) so I'm watching The Crown and it's probably my guilty pleasure Uh, (laughs) and I'm watching Sex Education with no guilt at all because it's hilarious Um, and very relatable and then I haven't been very good about watching movies lately Mm. so gotta get my butt into a theater to watch Parasite yeah yeah I 
I, I love the movie. It's great. It's great. I've seen it twice now. <laughs> Everyone I know has been like, this is the greatest movie. It's gotten no bad reviews from anyone I know, so I think it's time. Um, and then books. Um, honestly, a lot of my reading lately is consumed with coursework. But uh, one thing that I really loved is where is it i'm looking sorry i'm pulling up my goodreads because <laughs> sometimes the books escape from the back of my head um i really really loved oh i really really loved moon of the crusted snow which okay. i read probably a month or two ago i don't have any fiction on the go right now lately it's been mostly poetry which i can talk about but the last novel that I really loved was Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabgeshig Rice. He's a Canadian Indigenous author, and the novel is a sort of, like, spooky, speculative fiction, dystopia kind of environmental disaster narrative uh-huh. that takes place on an Indigenous reserve in northern Ontario, I believe. Um, highly recommend Shoutouts to Patricia for giving me this great recommendation. Nice. It was, I like. I'm not PJC? normally a spooky stories person. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and get her on the podcast person. at some point. Hey, I'm sure she'd love to. She's got <laughs> lots to talk about. I'm sure your reconciliation discussion will go long and deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I've been I've been reading mostly poetry lately. Um, my advisor gifted me a poetry collection called Primitive by Janice Harrington that is a poetry collection that functions as a biography of this incredible black artist. Um, And the book is called Primitive because that is what art critics called his style because Mm -hmm. he had no formal art training. Um, So I'm really, you know, kind of in the vein of the stuff you're interested in, Angelo. I'm really into how different groups of people choose to tell stories and that's yeah. why i'm so into those two books of late I what are you read, reading i i want to read more poetry um uh i honestly haven't read too much uh recently i've been reading i i keep i'm, I'm still stuck on it um there's a there's a book called meet me in the bathroom um it's uh <laughs> it's uh, i forgot the, the the author's name but it's basically about early 2000s mid 2000s uh rock indie rock um that kind of surfaced in new york city um kind of talking about music scenes i've always been interested in you know we talk about cultures and stories like there's such a cool story in uh the new york city music scene and how music scenes kind of grow out of nowhere really um Mm -hmm. where they're confined to a political space like a like a geographic space um there's there's particular you know um a sound to it maybe um and friendships uh relationships um that's been incredible to me and and basically it's about like the strokes who uh you know shout out to them for um their new album that's coming out and also playing for bernie sanders they did a they did a um uh like a concert for bernie sanders 
um, for New Hampshire, like uh, at one of his rallies. And the funny thing is, uh, one of their most popular songs is called New York City Cops. And uh, for the song, Julian Casablancas, the, uh, the lead singer, invited a bunch of people at the rally to come up on stage he was just like come come up like impromptu just come up on stage and then cops came cops came out from the side to try and like wrangle everyone and make sure that like (laughs) you know they were they were like no 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 you gotta you gotta get back in the crowd and so they're singing this the song new york city cops and they're they're actual cops on the stage i that's so funny to me um, the irony is palpable. <laughs> I know, I know, and they're 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 doing it at a rally for Bernie Sanders, who who advocates for criminal justice reform. So, you know, it's it's, it's some really funny, ironic, you know, thing. And then um, uh, the Yayas uh, Vampire Weekend, who also did a rally for Bernie. Um, Bernie Sanders has been getting like the coolest artists to go and play at his rallies. Bonnie yeah, Vare did a like it. yeah, Bonnie Vare did a rally. Uh, Vampire Weekend did a rally, and the Strokes did a rally. It's just it's it's pretty cool. Um, but anyways, back to the book. It's it's just about this this early two thousands New York City um, music scene. There's there's a book I'm gonna start afterwards. Uh, you can't kill us until you kill us, or something like that. Um, hmm. he, the author's name is Hanif Abdur Karib. I'm gonna I'm I'm sorry if I didn't get his his name right. Um, but he writes essays on um, you know again on culture and on stories. But he's also a prolific like music essay writer, and he has a particular essay. There's an essay on My Chemical Romance, which shout out to them for their reunion tour. Like all of these bands are just coming, coming out. All with the bands music. of our teen years. Yeah, I know, I know, and I'm so excited. But uh, My Chemical Romance, he did, he did an essay, and I read it. It's, it's incredible about My Chemical Romance and death. Um, Welcome to the Black Parade is all about death, and and he's talking about grief and. Um, and uh, how My Chemical Romance sort of encapsulates grief in their songs, especially um, that the album Welcome to the Black Parade. Um, and there's there's one that I, I need to read. I, I really need to read on Fall Out Boy because Fall Out Boy, I like. It's not even just a guilty pleasure for me. I just I just love Fall Out Boy. It's <laughs> it's great. It's it's uh, me circa two thousand seven teenage angst. You know, um, for but, sure. But on on your point about poetry, I wish I, lo- I I wish I read more poetry. I you know I, I think in in some ways I I don't know how to I I don't know how to read poetry. But I like um, you know I don't know how to like sit down and concentrate and and read poetry. But I've tried and yeah. like I've. Um, Maybe you know these poets. Uh, Ann Carson is a favorite of mine. Okay. Um, there's that really incredible collection of books book she has um, called Knox on uh, grieving about her brother that she didn't know but had passed away. Um, and she uses the myth of... Um, of her like Herodotus and his reporting on these like myths, um, mm. you know I I I come from a history background so 
and Carson is a Greek history professor. So the the merging of like poetry and and that is is so cool. Um, Khalil Gibran and and the Prophet, I'm I'm really into. I've always liked uh, Khalil Gibran, um, Alexander Pope, uh, Robert Frost. Um, you know, I'm just I'm trying to read more poetry. I'm trying, and maybe you can help me out uh, after this. <laughs> you can you can recommend some some poets for me, but you know um, that that's sort of what I'm I'm reading. I gotta ask I will you. Say, yeah, in the ahead. vein of um, you know, in the vein of your podcast, I think eh, it's a it's an academic book, but it's honestly not written anything like academic books that I've ever read. I'm really really excited by um, I'm in the middle of Samia Katoon's Australianima and the founding question of that book is what if we read the historical documents of non English speaking traditions in the like epistemological and like mythological worldview of the people who wrote them what if we read documents from the subcontinent with a view to the mythology from the subcontinent that informs them? What if we read documents from even English-speaking cultures with a view to the the myths and the stories that inform the worldview of the people who wrote them? Um, so I will say, in the, in the spirit of the stories podcast, my academic reading is also kind of bound up in this, like, what if we listen to people's stories on their own? in terms which has been super cool for me because I think I thought I wasn't a labor historian because labor is often so economic but it turns out that labor is just the story of people who work really hard and are regular people like you and me and so this book has been like an awesome reminder of that in a geographical context that I'm not really super familiar with so pitch for Samia Katoon's Australianima (laughs) that's really cool Give me, so I will put in the podcast description, um, give me the link for the NPR piece that you were talking about and for that book. I'll put it in the description. Sounds um, good. Yeah, um, that's that's incredible. And, you know, I, just to add, uh, like, one of my research focuses, and maybe maybe I might go to grad school for it, um, I, I loved um, historiography um, and specifically... The, the way that memory and history interacts um uh the past is never past it's a, it's always present i think there's that's a mm. henry ford quote or something um i've i've always believed that and, and we see it every day you know the past is you know affects our our today um and um myths are are such a big part of that it's a big part of ethnic identities and whether or not you actually think about it or not like in the frame frameworks in which you interact with people in your in your culture and your society you are in some ways interacting with the the founding myths of um of your of your culture right yeah um whether it's the the founding you know political myths of of canada or you know the indigenous myths uh that explain the origins of the world um you know judeo-catholic um you know origins of of the world um greek mythology uh roman mythology you know we use all of these words in our daily vocabulary and 
they are they are myths that 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 frame our world view and i think that's that's incredible and so i i, I probably will uh have to pick that book up um i so before before i end i i, I don't want to take up too much of your time but is there anything else you want to add before before we end this off um i don't know i guess i would just encourage everyone who's listening to think about the prompt that you have on their terms what is not just necessarily their story but you know i would encourage people to think about their place in other people's stories and for them to you know get excited about the things that are happening in their own story and in typical historian fashion i would encourage people to seek out a way of preserving those memories um especially the memories of the people around you i think you know this podcast is a good reminder for me that sometimes we don't we don't reflect back on what's going on in our lives until much much later and maybe some quiet time for reflection would be helpful <laughs> yeah um thank you for coming on this podcast i really appreciate this was such a incredible discussion thanks for having um, me yeah i so i i love talking about food and and that, that was just it was it's just fun and um uh, you know, both of us did history. You you obviously took it on as an academic career, but um, I've always loved the idea of like memories and history, ethnic histories, um, and mythologies, and and the way you talked about food, how it's such a it's such a unifying thing, and how it represents so much, how it represents family and culture and history racism colonialism um love really how it how it represents love and i think that's that's really cool so i really appreciate you coming onto the podcast for this um i will like send me those links i'll put it in the description um that sounds you know, great yeah yeah i thanks I, for I really, having me yeah i really love this discussion so um before i go you know everybody who's listening in on this um uh, I hope you subscribe. Go find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening to. Um, I guess by if if you're listening to the podcast already, you figured out where you're gonna where you you've got your <laughs> podcast. Um, but um, I, I think uh, Apple Apple Music and Spotify uh, podcast they have rating uh, ratings. Please rate us. Um, hopefully five stars. Uh, but if, if, if not, you know, give us some feedback, um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I, I will be doing more episodes. I've got a couple more, uh, guests lined up and, you know, I'm excited to, to, to bring more people on to talk about their stories, um, to just to like have, have discussions like this, uh, really important discussions and, um, really fun discussions and, and, uh, um, hopefully you know make an impact i think um anyways you want to say goodbye bye um thanks for having me and thanks for listening to my story yeah well thank you for coming on um so take care everybody uh well, we'll you'll we'll hear from you'll hear from us at at some point um you know i don't do this like weekly or bi-weekly but i've got i've got some some episodes lined up so you'll you'll hear from me more regularly all right take care <laughs>